Welcome to Sparkplug, where we talk to smart people working at the intersection of business and technology. Brought to you by Snowshoe, your smarter loyalty leader. Sparkplug is happy to welcome Julia Nero to the podcast. Julia is the founder and CEO of Milk Run, an online marketplace and distribution technology that makes it easy to buy food directly from local farmers. She started Milk Run in 2018 in Portland, Oregon, where we're located as well, and she's now preparing to scale nationally. Milk Run aims to develop an alternative to today's global food system that's better for people and better for growers. And it makes growing local food and logistics more efficient. So welcome, Julia. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Ned. Well, I'd love to know how you came to start Milk Run. What's your background? What's your career history? Yes, it's very interesting. I can tell you I never really set out to become a farmer or really a startup founder for that matter. So I found my way into this world, but I became a farmer in 2014, actually, when I moved out to Oregon. Previously, I'd spent my career in digital marketing. So I graduated college. I was actually a creative writing and philosophy double major and didn't find out till late in the game that the only really true career paths from that kind of degree was teaching. And that I did not really think I would do well at. And that was, of course, at the time also where digital marketing, SEO, social media was still in its infancy. You know, WordPress, actually, when it first started coming out, I started learning WordPress and Drupal at the very, very beginning with Blogger and Whiteboard Wednesdays. So for me, I think that was a great translation of writing, recognizing that there was this skill in writing when we could use content and we could use search algorithms and the way that we named things and that we named our URLs and our products and the descriptions and all of the metadata made a huge impact for businesses as everybody was transitioning online. So I got my first internship in my senior year in college for a content management system. So it was a company that had its own custom CMS in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I started optimizing product descriptions for the retailers that they were bringing online. And then that later became known as the field of digital marketing. A series of small startups and companies later, because that was a pretty growing field at the time. So there weren't many of us, and there weren't many of us certainly in Colorado, where I was recruited by Penton Media, so the largest B2B media company in the US, second largest globally. And I was recruited quite young to lead the digital marketing internal efforts and agencies. So my job was to actually take 172 traditionally print media media brands, digital, and wow. to help them transition. Yeah. Also, when a content marketer's dream moves across 17 different vertical markets. So everything from natural food. So Natural Products Expo was one of the Penton brands to Windows Super Sites and Industry Week magazine. So very exciting. I guess that transition, I was able to get in early and understand all of the opportunities that content marketing and then social media broke open for all of us. Right. Well, I'd love to circle back to that idea of becoming a farmer. I know that digital media is big, but working with actual food that grows out of the ground, that's a different world than digital marketing. Can you tell us about the dichotomy in your two worlds? Yes, it certainly was. That was my life. It was very much consultant lifestyle, especially when I moved client side for Penton. And I was young and this corporate world, very corporate experience. I moved out to Portland, expecting to end up in Seattle or San Francisco. Following that track, I landed in the middle. My best friend was living there. And I decided to move into her basement, so to speak, and see what Portland was all about. That's when I met a group of chefs who were moving up from California to Portland, as many have, to start a farm and open a restaurant, now Renata, where they would grow and raise all of the ingredients for the restaurant. 
this group of people were actually part of a larger company that they'd just come off, quote unquote, tour from outstanding in the field. So Leah Scaife, who's a pillar in the Portland food community, one of my very best friends and responsible very much so for my transition into farming. They had spent a decade on the road traveling the world, hosting people out on farms to eat dinner and those long white tables. And I met this group of people at that time. And I just honestly had my quarter life crisis when I realized there was this whole incredible movement of very passionate people who were so completely dedicated to food and to the service of food and the sustainability farming practices that growing food and getting that close to our roots offered us and the preservation of those traditions that for me, it really just became a no-brainer. And I had no idea how I was going to help, but I realized, long story short, I remember the day before I quit, Leah and I were going on a walk on the first farm that we had in Salem, Oregon, which is a whole story in itself. But she just said, Julia, look around you. You're not going to starve. And she was right. And for me, it was always about the people. It was always about the stories. It was always about how can it be this hard to buy food from the people who are directly growing it and making such a massive impact on a daily basis. That question just kept coming up for me and there has to be an easier way. I dove in the deep end of the pool, so to speak, and it's been a joy every day since. Wow. Well, could you tell us more about what Milk Run actually provides? What's the bridging technology that you're providing between the farm to table? I'll start with a little bit more of extension into that story, of course, when it comes to the differences that we're able to make. I feel like we're in a movement of a lot of companies that are really solving for. A lot of it lives behind the curtain of the food industry. The food that we all eat is a huge ecosystem. And when I became a farmer, that was very early days. And then that led to purchasing land in Canby, Oregon, and then focusing more on ranching. So livestock and regenerative farming and grass-fed beef. Then that also transitioned into the succession plan of one of the last independently owned USDA meat processing facilities, not only in the state of Oregon, but across the country. Actually, that is my former partner, Jimmy Serlin, and notable chef of uh, Portland, Ben Meyer, called Revel Meat Company. So right. that was started. Revel Meat Company used to be Mark's Meats, and it was right down the street from our farm when Jimmy and I bought that. And that happened the way things happen for farmers or in food right now, which is you need a USDA processing facility. If you raise livestock, you care very much so about who is going to be processing your animals and you need that stamp of approval from the federal government in order to distribute. When I say dove into the deep end of the pool, there it is. So when you start as a farmer and you're raising animals, you're growing produce, you're so committed to that craft alone. And then you start to understand what will it take for us to not even scale, right? How to support ourselves as a small farm. And then what are our opportunities? How do we serve our markets? And if you think about your average farmer, where you go to the farmer's market, or maybe you're part of a CSA program. But if you think about a small business owners and some of the challenges there, then think about that times 10 for a farmer. They're having to grow all of their food, plan and plant all of the seasons ahead. They're gambling every day, right? With the weather and all of the circumstances beyond the control. Not only that, but now they're competing with Fred Meyer, with all big box stores, with everything that's really sold within the commodity market. And in order to be a small farmer that's selling direct, by the way, small farmers are 90% of our nation's farmers and really the wealth. Wow. Wait, wait. Yeah. 90% still of our nation's farmers are small. Yes. Could you define small? What do you mean by small? I'll use the government standard way. And that actually is, they make under 100,000 income total as a business a year. You can also look at it from an acreage perspective, but there are those different tiers of farms. So if you could think about it, it's a classic joke. How do you become a millionaire as a small farmer? Or you start out with two. 
this is not a profitable business for anybody. Mm -hmm. This is a labor of love and land. To me, that has only been a short amount of time in our history. That has not always been the case. When we really saw the commodity market pick up and Fred Myers of the world, it was just the way that the world was moving so quickly. That really changed. So really about the 60s and the 70s, that's where you saw the rapid transition of the ability to make money or to have really an attractive lifestyle being a small farmer. And that's where the rubber meets the road for us today when we're thinking about all of the issues that we have to face from a climate perspective and a population perspective. We have less and less farmers and we have less and less small farmers. And for me, when I think about it, and I just looked around at all the people who are farming, my neighbors, my friends, the people who taught us, who are there every day right now, those are the people who are actively working at solving some of our biggest challenges. They are tasked with having to figure out how to find customers, how to figure out how to send sales sheets for perishable goods every week to customers, how to price things, how to forecast those sales, how to deliver to customers, whether they're restaurants, retailers, or the farmer's market. How to mitigate loss in that chain, how to afford cold storage on their farm, all of it. How to be able to afford the total cost of ownership on your small sprinter van when your average commute is four hours. If you really think about it, right, this is the urban and rural divide and it's most direct. And for me, I think, to, to be honest, when you think about the massive amount of challenges and everything working against you, the fact that we still have 90% of our nation's farmers and we still have an incredibly motivated generation of farmers who will want that call to go back to small. Can we go back to more diversified programs, more regenerative? These aren't crazy concepts. These are fundamentals to farming and land management. I just find that amazing. And that's where the spark hit. It was just, if that is true, and even how hard it is, you think as a consumer, how hard is it to consistently buy from these farmers and you're willing to do it because we all fundamentally know that act alone is really a solution. And I think working in this market, especially the technical side, the food tech landscape, I think that is kind of always the theme is we don't need to build more technology or more systems or invent a new way of growing food. Is how do we use that to apply it to systems that work and help actually facilitate the efficiency within a system we know will solve a lot? Right. When you say solve a lot, though, do you mean not only solving for shoppers to make it more convenient, but also better for farmers and having an economic impact there? I assume you're attacking both ends of the equation. Absolutely. And I'll take it even one step further. You're talking about that's fundamental, our soil, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some of these huge issues never want to be doomsday because there are always stories of optimism. However, what do we need? We need to facilitate and grow and, if anything, scale the solutions in front of us to face the environmental challenges right. and really the future state challenges that we have in front of us. So much mm-hmm. of it comes down to our land, our water, and our air. And farmers are the people who are responsible on a daily basis who choose to make it their living to steward that land. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. So if we could (laughs) take the world that you're imagining and make it happen, what would the future of Farm to Table look like? Where do you think we're going in an optimistic world? There's so much to learn. There's so much to know. So I I look forward to being interviewed again in in a year and five, if you will. And and I know I'll, I'll be humbled many times over. And I look forward to that. Because there's so much to learn, but I do think, so this isn't about there's a better way. There is this world where we need to replace the commodity market or our global supply chains or systems. I don't even pretend to know enough about how to solve that or that that is the answer. That isn't the goal. The goal is how do we make the world of small farming, diversified farming, regenerative farming, these practices are inherent to what it means to be a small farmer. 
how do we preserve those traditions and scale them and give them a place in the future that is not only more secure, but also a very viable option to the commodity market? I mean, that's the quest is not how do we forget about these systems that we all know and has been widely recognized that we need. How do we actually now create systems, which for Milkron that became version one for us was helping to reduce the middle. How do we actually help use technology to make distribution simpler and buying direct from these farmers more convenient so that the share of the dollar is larger? For us, there is something fundamental in that to ensuring the world of small farming in our nation has a bigger seat at the table in the future. I think that's a really inspirational vision. And during the pandemic, a lot of visions had to take a step back. I know consumers changed how they purchase food, even how they cook food. I know we used our kitchen a lot more during the pandemic. So how did the pandemic affect Milk Run? Did you make any changes to your business model? Yes, many ways we say that we're a company that was started in 2020 Ah. and the waves. And then I will also say what's really interesting for Milkrun is we weren't a traditional tech company. I know a lot of tech companies only saw massive success and just unbelievable growth and gains. Whether it was our strategy or our market, there were many waves of that. And it was was all really based on the consumer waves, what we all went through. So yes, early days, what I will say is I was in Techstars Accelerator 2020 when the pandemic hit. So we graduated in April and started, it was a January to April class. So we grew 15X in eight weeks. The company went from January, I'll say, to me as a sole mm-hmm. and full-time employed person. And I was still driving the majority of the routes. We had two vans that I had purchased off of Craigslist. Definitely wonderful people who were showing up to help support us. Like my best friend who would leave her teaching job and come help. And we were running most of the deliveries and packing from my farm on a weekly basis. Definitely had this vision and the technical implications we'd been building this platform with this vision for some time. But the company just overnight. So that means in March, we were at 28 employees. We're doing about 500 orders a week. We also had become one of the only remaining sales channels to many of the farmers. We're working with farmers who were not selling to retailers. They were selling Mm -hmm. to restaurants and some were at the farmer's markets, but the farmer's markets were not open either. Seattle, for example, they were completely shut down for the majority of the year overnight that happened, the restaurant industry went away. And that's actually even how we have the facility that we did. Mm -hmm. Wonderful friends, Wilderland and Sea, incredible company. I owe so much of our ability to meet that demand to them because they just moved into a giant warehouse, which is a huge fixed cost to take on. And they lost their restaurant businesses, their accounts overnight, but we needed a facility to move into. So we moved, we acquired money of their staff. A lot of them are still with us today. And then majority of those 28 people that we were able to hire just at that time, the company's grown since then as well, but they were all out of the restaurant industry. So we gave them jobs. So you were able to be a sustaining force in the industry during this time of upheaval. It was miraculous. Really the ode to the Portland food community and how it works. Yes, we were Mm -hmm. growing and wanting to meet that moment as best we could and scaling an essential business during a pandemic. Pieces of paper on our dashboard saying we could be on the road. And then we had USDA training. So we wanted to be the model of what does this look like at this time? We had health and safety precautions already mapped out. We had boxes. We had been under federal inspection. We could literally replicate that playbook to a T at a time when there was no guidance. There was no support. There was nothing. But we had the gear that we needed. My mom had to make us face masks. And I did have to order through another Techstars company, hand sanitizer, <laughs> which they told me was the last that was going to be available for six months. Wow. Right. That was right. Our first I remember. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I know you've mentioned Techstars a couple times. Could you tell us about your Techstars experience? How did that help Milk Run get going? Yes, we did both Techstars and Y Combinator actually in 2020 mm-hmm. as well. But Techstars was most of our current major investors and the investors that have become mentors, friends, talk about partners to a young company in such a time. They actually came to us through Techstars, the rise of the rest, incredible. You know, They were looking for founders like me. They were looking for companies with a mission like Milk Run. Congruent mm-hmm. VC, incredible. We met them through the Techstars community. Yeah, I don't know what I really would have done without the support of that network, certainly at that time and everything through it. This has been a trying time for all business owners, let alone small food companies that are in the delivery space that have been riding this wave. That network or Techstars is in general, my 4 a.m. phone call. (laughs) Wow, fantastic. So one of the big things I've heard you talk about is the ability to scale rapidly and that your team has been able to really grow overnight. So your team reaches out to customers though entirely online. You don't have a physical downtown building. You're reaching out to customers online. And so how have you been able to scale your overall customer acquisition and demand reach online only? Yeah, great question. And that has changed. It's been a constant learning. A rate of learning Mm -hmm. has been high, if anything. For us, what we did was we also chose to not make growth our number one goal. We wanted our goal to be a longer term business model. And we Mm -hmm. found out during scaling the marketplace, more one-to-one e-commerce purchasings. We didn't have a subscription model at that time. So in Perfect Foods, for example, at that time, they had all subscription. We did not. We were just a market. Mm. So we learned a lot about what also doesn't scale. And instead of saying we're going to meet this moment with just rapid growth numbers, we actually need to think about what it is that will allow us to replicate in different markets and cities. And we actually played a dangerous game of getting a little bit too close into the, oh, we're going to compete with retailers. That is not our game, actually. We are food from farms. So we limited our SKUs. We actually did transition. Our customer base was hit biggest in Portland because they'd been used to a really wide set of options all the time without a subscription model. Mm-hmm. We moved to only Staples, limited our SKUs, replicated that in Seattle. And then in Austin, we took that risk, which who knows what I would do again. But for us, then the customers, the barrier to entry was a little bit higher as well. So this was subscribing to your farmer for the long term, because that's what we want. We want to sell your entire neighborhood eggs on a repeatable, steady click so that we can support one farm if needed off of one neighborhood is kind of the concept. And we knew that was what our farmers needed. It's what people wanted, but it still still is a new landscape for people. Not only can they buy their groceries online, but will they subscribe to their farmers online every week? And what we found was, yeah, we're also talking about digital ads and uh, you know skyrocketing and customer acquisition costs, which we cannot afford. So for us, it is always going back to the roots. We never had a marketing budget. So it is really, as we say, still in Milk Run, it's thousand true fans. And those are our customers. And so now you'll even see coming out from us, we're doubling down on that completely with owning as a membership program. Totally. How can we actually reward these members? So our customers became advocates. Our suppliers became advocates. Our employees as advocates. And instead of saying, we're just going to grow and scale, it became, well, what can we continue to do well? And if we continue to do that well, well, maybe we won't see the same growth numbers that other tech companies have this year, but we will be here and we will be around and we'll be proud of the work that we did. So that is the milk run lesson at the end of the day and where we continue to turn. Even Q1 strategy planning number one is thousand true fans and our fans are our customers and our suppliers, our farmers. 
Right. So that thousand true fans, building advocates instead of just customers, that is really fascinating. Can you tell us more about how you turn somebody from just a customer into an advocate or into, as you said, a true fan? What's the difference? Not easy, right? <laughs> and how do you measure yeah. that? We are lucky enough to customers bring our products into their home every week. You get a milk run box. So for us, it even came down to thinking about all the little details. So when you get a milk run box, how do we make sure your goods are cold? How do we make sure that box feels substantial and safe, like you can trust it? And then how do we have a box that can fit all of your goods, but they also fits on a refrigerator shelf so that milk can become a storage container for fresh produce? How do we make it so that each one of our customers so feels so excited that when they open their fridge, it says milk run. And when their kids are hungry, they open it and they see milk run and they know there's really amazing fresh carrots in there. And we did everything from recipes on paper to these digital QR codes to just constantly keep the story fresh of humanizing that. We know you can't go to the store right now, but this is our question every day at Milk Run. Well, we want it to feel like you're still shaking the hand of the farmer. Mm. It's a weekly focus on that and it's not easy. It's been a constant, whether it was SMS testing, forward this email, refer your friends. We now can roll our cooler program out again, but we were restricted a lot from the physical products because of COVID. So we're rolling those systems out now in a new way. But what we really found is people are proud to share their milk run purchase because it says something about what they value. So you'll see more things out from us like lawn signs or the cooler on your porch because right. our customers love to show off how hard they were to source mm -hmm. their groceries. Right. So besides the coolers, uh, can you tell us about any technologies that you're using to make life more convenient for your customers? What technologies do you think new startups should know about? Well, I mean, for us, as far as kind of the product, and we are Shopify, we're a custom Shopify platform. So we've been able to leverage a lot of the tools, whether it was Gorgeous or Clavio. So just a lot of deep learning about the different customer segments that we have. For example, this last week, we rolled out our live chat sprint. So we wanted to go back to the idea of we want to build trust. So everything that helps us build trust and help our customers recognize that they are purchasing from humans and they're humans working hard to source and fulfill their orders every week and deliver them has been critical. So every little piece, whether it was all within on fleet notifications on who your driver is, so you can talk all of those feedback loops, if you will, to the real humans in the team of Milk Run. That's where we focus our investment in some of those tools. And then on the other end, from our perspective, what we're preparing for and what we think about all the time are attributes. So how do customers want to shop? And the average customer purchases 187 unique items at the grocery store every year. That is actually not that many. And about 50% of them can be replaced by local goods, things outside of your toilet yeah. paper, things, if you will. And then we have customer archetypes. And not everyone's the same. And there are different archetypes, obviously, for every household. So for us, it's just also an understanding of attribute matching. So you'll see that reflected in our new product that's coming out later, which is based on the national concept. But that is an attribute matching game. So what are the ways that people are searching for small farmers and these really, really incredible goods 
from small farmers? And how do we make sure we highlight the farmers across the nation that fit into those categories, whether it's regenerative, heritage breed, women owned even Mm -hmm. these pieces for us. That's the most fun part of what we can do that farmer matching system. Right. It goes back to feeling like you're actually shaking the hand of the farmer. Yes. So you've talked about launching in Portland, going to Seattle, going to Austin. What does the future of milk run look like? We focused so much on our customers. We ended up with, at the end of the day, which is very exciting, wasn't exactly by design, but Mm -hmm. it was an incredibly high retention model. Our customers, once they stay with us, are quite happy. It's phenomenal. So yes, did we, during 2020, go after the acquisition growth, growth, growth game? I wouldn't say that that was where we focused, but our intention was definitely on how do we convert customers for life? How do we let people know, that's your milkman, that's milk But now what we've also found and what the constant question for us during that time was, and certainly after we raised the Series A, and we now have really big thinkers who are helping us in our way understand how to get to that future faster, is we have an opportunity now to, because of all of the farmers within our network, certainly now, who all understand and are playing the direct online sales game. How can we create the nation's kind of farmer's market and allow access for anybody across the country to purchase from our farmers based on a certain criteria, unique experiences, and using that as a tool to help us generate demand for our local membership, which is where you'll see additional items where you can buy more, you know, lower cart values on a really repeatable basis. So kind of now we've been able to think through how do we cast a wider net for our network of farmers without compromising the localization that we ultimately want to drive people into. So that has been a very cool thing to recognize was needed both ends, and to be able to view that from the retention model that we'd found in the local delivery. Right. We're really excited about that, if if you can't tell. And the lessons are hard too. Can you scale locally in every market fast Mm -hmm. enough? Yes and no. So the art of it now is how do we generate that demand on a national level without compromising and only adding to our ability to localize? Right. Well, this has been such an engaging, interesting conversation with you, Julie. I just have one final question, which is, what do you want your personal legacy to be? And I guess another way to say it is, how do you want to be remembered? Personally, (laughs) as a founder, I guess you don't spend too much time thinking about yourself. I think I have learned more about leadership than I could have ever dreamed. That was definitely a certain word before I became a startup founder and certainly one that led a company through a pandemic times. But leadership now is something I'm very committed to learning every day and, and applying myself to. I don't think I hit it every day, but I hope one day to be at least recognized in the name of a few as someone who led well in a mission-driven company that had huge goals, that was navigating really wild times. We have a little bit of a misfit philosophy. We're food people, a lot of kitchen people and farmers on our team, and we like it that way. And I know this company will be a legacy company, and it will be built from the people who really were there in the fields and in the kitchens and wanted to learn how technology could help further their mission. So I hope I led well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you. Sparkplug is a wholly owned property of Snowshoe. All content, copyright, 2021, Sparkplug Media.